Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Time Magazine called him the Forgiveness Trailblazer. He's also known as the father of forgiveness research because of his 36 years researching and implementing forgiveness programs. He's the co-founder of the International Forgiveness Institute and currently holds the Aristotelian Professorship in Forgiveness Science within the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's got seven books, over 150 publications. And he's here with us today. I'm very excited. Dr. Robert Enright is an OG when it comes to forgiveness. And his book, Forgiveness is a Choice, truly changed my life. He very graciously agreed to sit down with me to talk about his, you know, evidence-based forgiveness model. You know, I like to come at you with the things that really work and have been proven to work. And why you want to include forgiveness in your life so you can truly find peace and happiness. So let's get to it. I'm Dr. Abby Metcalf, and I'm a psychologist, number one Amazon bestselling author, TEDx speaker, and all around relationship maven. With over 30 years of experience helping people create connection, joy, and ease in all their relationships. What's my secret? Well, besides being totally hilarious, I help you think differently so you can approach your relationships in a completely new way. I'm the best deal in town because the tools I teach apply to all your relationships, which allows you to simplify your life and find the confidence, calm, and deep love you've been craving. Combining my hands-on experience and all the latest research, I've created actionable tips and tools you can apply quickly and easily to create lasting change in all your relationships today. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. So I am here with Dr. Robert Enright. And I just was telling him, as you all know, that I start fangirling when I get great researchers on. So, uh, but I'm going to, I really have good questions today. We are going to give you such great information today. And so welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for asking me, Abby. That's great. All right. So let me say first, and my listeners know, you know, I had a really uh, difficult relationship with my mom, who was a narcissist. And for uh, many years, I struggled. And your, uh, when I read Forgiveness is a Choice way back, um, I really started to think differently about our relationship. And my mom, passed this last November and I was able to tell everyone I was at peace. I, we got along well. I took care of her. I was loving. I was compassionate and really felt as good as I could feel with her, you know, and it really, so when I talk to folks about forgiveness, which I have done many times in the podcast, it's, they know it's from the work I've done too and what's worked with my clients. So 
Uh, I want to say that first. And so let's jump in. We're And today, because we're really going to focus, you know, I, I noticed that so much even of what I've taught is about here's how to forgive, you know, here's the steps, here's the phases. And we'll talk about yours a little, but I mostly really want to talk about why would you want to forgive? People think I could never forgive, forget it. It's uh, never going to happen. And so I, we're going to delve deep into that today. So I was hoping we would start with your definition of forgiveness, you know, what it is and what it's not. Sure. Well, when I started out in 1985, I blinked my eyes and 36 years went by, <laughs> we scoured the world to try and find commonalities across the different philosophies and world faith, whether it's humanism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Confucianism, Hinduism. And we think we have boiled down forgiveness to three points. Number one, you have been treated unjustly by someone else. And that might be a pattern, as you had said with your mom, with narcissistic behavior, or it could be a one-time event. But there is moral injury of some kind. You've been wronged. Then you respond to that person or the people. It might be an entire family group, for example. You respond with two kinds of approaches when you make the decision to forgive. One is to get rid of the negative, which is a conscious, deliberate, willed decision, and then work after that decision to get rid of resentment toward the person. And that oftentimes can take the, for example, in just the homework we give, to do no harm to the other. Mm. And it's not just to do no harm through gritted teeth, but it's a change of heart from very negative to moving away from that. And the third part of the definition, which is the second issue that happens when a person decides to forgive, and here's where it gets controversial. We deliberately try to be good to those who are not good to us. Why? Well, first of all, forgiveness is a moral virtue, as is justice and patience and kindness and all the rest of the moral virtues rolled into one. All of them are about goodness. So if forgiveness is in that family of moral virtue, then on the highest level, we are offering to the one who hurt us kindness, respect, generosity, and even love. Now, you don't expect that to happen the first day you decide to forgive. That could take months or years, and a person may never get to the highest level. The highest level of forgiveness is to unconditionally love those who have not loved you. And again, that's what makes forgiveness so controversial. People say this is ridiculous, but as we'll see in this podcast, it probably not so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness is not excusing what the other did and say, oh, I can get rid of resentment and be kind to the person because what happened wasn't so bad. No. When you forgive, you realize what happened was bad, is bad, and will always be bad. We don't forget this idea of forgive and forget. I rework that language to say we forgive and remember in new ways, without the rancor, without the gritted teeth and the clenched fist. Forgiveness is not just calming down. If I calm down from someone who's hurt me, that doesn't mean I'm going to be good to them. I could be very indifferent toward that person. And being indifferent is not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is an active goodness toward the other. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Here's where those who are skeptical about forgiveness start to realize, oh, maybe there's something to this. When you forgive, you are offering the possibility of getting rid of resentment and hatred to offer kindness or respect, generosity, even love, but you watch your back. If the person is continuing to abuse you, you don't reconcile. 
Reconciliation is not a moral virtue. Reconciliation is a negotiation strategy between two or more people who come together again in mutual trust. You can forgive without reconciling. Although one of the goals of forgiveness is reconciliation, the other won't necessarily accept your goodness. So you have to leave. And then also, and this is again, something that people calm down a little bit when they hear about what forgiveness is and is not. When you forgive, it's not an either or proposition with the other moral virtues. You don't forgive and then throw justice under the bus. Forgiveness and justice grow up together. So if someone keeps verbally abusing you and you try to forgive by getting rid of your resentment and offering goodness, you still, as a morally virtuous person, can say, I want you to stop doing that. That is hurting me. But if you think about it, if you approach the person with a forgiving heart, that dialogue is likely to be much more fruitful than if you give the eye for an eye, rancor for rancor, and you condemn the other as a person because they're condemning you as a person, then you ask for justice, the war will escalate. Yep. And so when we forgive, we don't excuse, we don't necessarily forget, we remember in new ways, we don't just calm down, because that's not active enough. We may or may not reconcile, that's the other's call, really, if they're going to shape up, so to speak, and we have justice alongside forgiveness when treated unfairly. Oh, I love that. There was a, I don't know, I don't even know if you remember this quote, but I say it a lot to my clients that forgiveness is free, trust must be earned. And exactly. I read it in one of your books. I don't remember which one, but it it's such a good one. And it's really what you're saying. So when people argue with me about this point, I tell them that, you know, you're, it's this, it's, it's about love, not fear. It's about, you know, be having enough self-respect and enough enough feeling of, of your own agency to be able to do that, to not feel like you're going to get now taken advantage of. That's the thing I hear a lot, but now I'll get taken advantage of. And I talk to folks about, well, yeah, you're not trusting them. That doesn't mean that you're going to just do that. It, it's about still having boundaries like you just described and, you know, setting those up and holding people to the boundary, uh, which is, again, a, a healthy, loving act. To, to have healthy boundaries in your life. When I give a physical image, forgiveness is like this. You've been wounded, but in your courage, in your compassion, you're offering a hand up to the other out of the pit they've thrown themselves into. Mm. And they don't necessarily grab a hold of your hand. And so they're staying in that pit of indifference and hurt and fear but you're giving them a chance to change through the possibility of reconciliation. Sadly, not everyone gets it. Mm -hmm. In fact, some will try to bite off your hand when you extend it, but that's when you need to pull your hand away fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, love it. So talk a little bit about that. You know, you have uh, these, you know, four phases, which we're not going to, today we're talking about why you want to forgive, but I do, I did want you to touch on the four phases because that's what sold me was, you know, phase one, anger, getting angry. And I, I thought, oh, I'm already there. You know, I'm already doing this. And this idea of acknowledging my anger in a real way and finally crying and grieving about something and really feeling those feelings, which I had been, you know, studiously compartmentalizing for many years in my resentment. Um, so I'd love for you to talk about the phases, just so people can get an overall picture yeah. of where it look, where it goes. Sure. The phases are basically a roadmap. They show you how to get from your woundedness to a place of peace and possibly uh, new insight into the other and into yourself and into the world in general and who people mm -hmm. are. Yep. And so the first of four is what we call the uncovering phase, where we don't ignore or deny anger and woundedness. In fact, we're very gentle with those who begin to forgive because they are coming from a place of woundedness. Their heart 
have been greatly hurt. And so we need to give the person time for that. If we said, hey, start forgiving right away, it's going to be good for you. We have science. An analogy would be if you've hurt your knee while running and we say, get into the gym. Well, no, you have to get that MRI. You might have to have surgery. You might have rehab of this knee before you go into the gym. Well, it's the same thing with forgiveness. We have to rehabilitate the broken heart. And that means acknowledging the heart has been broken, give that time and be gentle with the person. And during the uncovering phase, let the person realize how the effects of the injustice are worse than the injustice itself. When we've been hurt by Ooh. others, it could yeah, say that again. Brain. Yeah, so good. The, say uh, that the, again. The, yeah, the effects <laughs> of the yeah. injustice actually can be much worse yep. than the injustice itself. As an example, let's say your mother was narcissistic to you for years. That's the injustice. Well, you could carry that for 50 more years. And when you carry that, you could get tired. You could get pessimistic. You could take it out on your husband. You can take it out on your coworkers. You can take it out on yourself. You can even subvert yourself by excessive drink, for example, less sleep, uh, just not doing well at work because you're displacing your anger and subverting your uh, fellow colleagues. Look at all of the effects that could tumble down on you because of what happened a long time ago. People don't realize that. Yep. They want to hold on to the righteous anger. And while it's okay to have anger to some degree, the uncovering phase shows that if you have deep, long-lasting anger that keeps going, you're hurting yourself. So once people realize that they didn't deserve any of this, and there are a lot of effects, such as fatigue and pessimism and maybe you know, hating others who had nothing to do with this, we ask the person, now in the decision phase, the second of four phases in our roadmap, well, has what you've tried so far in your life worked? And the answer oftentimes is no. And we've worked with incest survivors. Suzanne Friedman, who's a professor at the University of Northern Iowa, did a very courageous study with incest survivors, and they tried everything under the sun to cure themselves, but they came to us clinically depressed, you see. So we would work on this first, this idea of uncovering. Nothing really worked for them in eliminating their depression. They came to us clinically depressed. So we said, would you like to try forgiveness? That's the decision phase. Would you like to give this a try since you've tried everything else? And in Suzanne Friedman's case, they all said no. They said, there's no way I'm going to forgive that man, father, father figure. But they were also kind, and they said, we'll be part of your study anyway. Uh, but I'm not going to show any effectiveness for your work. And Suzanne, courageous Suzanne, said, come anyway. So she went through the definition. You will actually be acknowledging your pain you will be trying to get rid of resentment and gulp, gasp. You're going to be offering something good to the one who engaged in this extremely violent behavior toward you. They all said yes. And we went through what forgiveness is and is not with them. Then we entered the work phase. And the work phase is like hitting the forgiveness gym. It's like the knee is rehabilitated enough to hit the, the gymnasium. Well, once you get to the point of, saying, okay, well, I can maybe try to get rid of my resentment, at least try it, and maybe I'm open to the possibility of some goodness, we hit the forgiveness gym in doing the work. And we start with thinking. And we start with thinking because it's much easier to think about others than to feel good feelings toward them. We're not in control of our feelings. We can't just say, feel compassion, everybody. <laughs> well, no way. But if we said, think about a little bunny hopping on your lawn and just very happy with the baby and mother bunny. You can do that because you're in control of your thinking. 
Yeah. And so we ask three kinds of patterns of thought toward those who've hurt us. And Suzanne did that with the incest survivors, all women, by the way. Uh, and so first is to look at the personal perspective. Who is this person who hurt you? And we try to look beyond the violent behavior. Is this person wounded? Did this person do this out of some kind of lack of training and what it means to be human toward another human being? And what kind of training, what kind of upbringing did this person have to have that kind of thought? What kind of wounds were placed on this person so that this person so gravely wounded you? Mm. And we oftentimes see that when people wound others gravely, they've been wounded. Wounded yep. people wound other people. Yep. It's not to excuse, nope. or to condone what happened. Nope. It's not to abandon fairness, but it's to see someone as more than their actions. That's the personal perspective. Then comes the global perspective. And this is a hard one. We say, well, is this person a human being as you are? Mm. Are you both going to die one day? If you cut, do you bleed? Does that person cut? Do they need uh, good nutrition and adequate sleep as you do? Does the person have unique DNA? Yeah, so that means, do you have unique DNA too? Well, that what that means is you're both special, unique, and irreplaceable. There's no one like that other person on this planet. When that person is gone, there'll never be a person like that person. Or you, you're completely unique and special and irreplaceable, but both of you are. And then the third kind of thinking is what we call the cosmic perspective. And that one I learned from uh, a philosopher, Keith Yandel, who's no longer among the living, broke my heart, he passed away. And he came to me one day and he said, Enright, your thinking exercises are way too narrow. And I said, Keith, I'm a professor. How could that be? And he said, well, uh, I'm a professor too. And I think they're narrow. I said, tell me about it. And he said, you need a cosmic perspective. He said, tell me what you mean. I started taking notes. And he said, most people have a transcendent perspective, a religious perspective, a spiritual perspective, and you need to take advantage of that. And and talk with the person about that. Mm -hmm. For example, in terms of Judeo-Christian beliefs, the idea would be everybody is made in the image and likeness of God in Genesis 1. Yep. He said, you know, you ought to ask people when they're broadening the perspective on those who hurt you, is that person made in the image and likeness of God? And are you made in the image and likeness of God? And I said, Keith, you got it, the <laughs> cosmic perspective. So he broadened my, per my perspective. And so when we put all of these perspectives together, we see a wounded other who shares a common humanity with me. So we both have built-in worth. We're both special. And gasp, gulp, we're both made in the image and likeness of God. And what does that mean for who that other is? Wow. And once these take time to nurture in a person, and that can take months, we then ask the one who's forgiving to focus on the heart as the forgiver tells the story about who the other is from the personal, global, and cosmic perspectives. And lo and behold, we find that the heart is no longer stony cold. It starts to loosen up a little bit. The tight fist around the heart that won't let anybody in starts loosening. And so now we have the, what we call the compassion or the willing to suffer along with the one who made me suffer. And when the person does that, they get strong enough to bear the pain or stand in the pain. And others have used that image of standing in the pain before we have. Hospice, for example, in grief work, tells people to lean into the pain. Mm -hmm. We tell people to stand in the pain so you don't throw the pain back to the other. And you don't do that until the heart starts softening. And then we ask the forgiver, well, who are you if you can stand in this pain? And look how amazing you are that you can stand in this pain and it's not defeating you. And their image of themselves starts to transform. Yeah. And then it's only then we then come to completion in the work phase what forgiveness really is as a moral virtue. And we ask, when you're ready, 
if you're ever ready, can you do something good for the one who hurt you? Oh, I'm never going to see the person again. Okay, you could donate to charity in the person's name or say something good about the person, not because of what happened to you, but because there were more than that in the family. Uh, one woman who was part of Suzanne Friedman's work uh, fed her dying father in the hospital, just as you did, Abby, with your mother. And mm. she said, you know, I'm so glad I did that because now that my, that my father passed and I have forgiven, I would have grieved and been enraged. And now I'm only grieving. Mm. Another woman uh, who's Jewish took her two sons to the cemetery and had a tasteful Jewish respect for the dead ceremony, giving her father a good name in the family, not because of what he did to her, but because he was more than that. And so that's the third phase. And the fourth phase then is the discovery phase. We discover meaning in our suffering. And you know what happens to most people when they forgive those who've hurt them deeply? They're more sensitive to the wounds in other people around them, at work, at home, yep. right, in their community. And so I, I remember working with someone in a, a prison, and he's there for life. And he said, but you know what? I now have a new purpose because I find the meaning that we're all suffering. And my new purpose is to bring forgiveness into these cells. And I'm going to do that, even though I know I'll never get out of here. So meaning and purpose begin to emerge. You realize you're not alone because oftentimes you talk with others. Okay. I, when I write books, I am with the person as they read it. You see, they're not alone. And then finally comes release, what I call release from the emotional prison, where you are less depressed, less anxious, less angry, your self-esteem rises, right? You, you might reconnect with faith, because sometimes people fall away from their own faith because they blame God for what God didn't do. Uh, and so there's realizing that you've exaggerated all the negativity in the world. And a person gets the life back. And that's what we see at the end of the journey. Once you finally stop the forgiveness car and you get out, you realize the sun's shining, man. And it probably wasn't shining for years for me, but it's shining because I have a fresh start. I am healed paradoxically by giving of myself to the other, thinking that would never help me, and it helps me wonderfully, and our research shows that. And the person is, in fact, healed and ready now to give this to other, like my friend in the jail cell for the rest of his life, giving forgiveness to others who are there with him. Mm. So we have uncovering, the decision, the work, and the discovery phases, all leading us on the roadmap to release. Mm -hmm. I love it. You know, and what I what really always has struck me and I think is important is uh, I sometimes when I was in therapy around my mom, uh, I was pushed to find meaning earlier in the process and I couldn't. And so I got, I kept getting stuck. I kept getting hung up. And I saw that as my own sort of moral failing that, you know, I'm mm -hmm. so, you know, screwed up. I'm so selfish. I'm so whatever, you know, uh, how my mom made me, it's my mother, you know, I would have all these things. And when I first read your book, I, I thought, oh, <laughs> I was, I was sort of putting the cart before the horse. And that happens a lot in therapy. People are asked to find me or even in grief in general, they're asked to find meaning, you know, when they're really still in all their feelings in their anger, they haven't acknowledged it and they haven't really cried or grieved or all these things. And I, and I do like that your phases, you can kind of move in and out of them, which is great. Cause I don't think it's just a straight line. At least I certainly found that in my own life. Mm -hmm. However, you can't just jump to the end. And I think that, and, and can you speak to that? Does that happen a lot where people sort of go too fast or jump ahead yes. too soon? Oh, absolutely, because the point is to try and get rid of the pain. But the point isn't to try to get rid of the pain. The point is to go on the journey. And as you go on the journey, eventually the pain lessens. So if I'm in it 
for me. And if I'm in it to get to the punchline of no more pain, that doesn't necessarily work because the paradox of forgiving is as I give of myself to others, I am the one who heals. So it's a very radically different kind of therapy where traditional therapy, when you come in to the therapist, the light shines on you as the client. In forgiveness therapy, we shine the light deliberately away from the client and onto the one who hurt that client. And in the giving toward the one on whom we're shining the light, which is the villain, so to speak, and we realize that person is more than that, now the client begins to have a healing that the person never thought possible. Going back to Suzanne Friedman's work, you know what happened after a year with the experimental group, six of the incest survivors? They went from clinically depressed to non-depressed. Those in the control group for that year, and they had therapy as they wished, but not forgiveness mm -hmm. therapy with Suzanne, they were still clinically depressed. Oh. Then she worked with the, these control group people and gave them a year of forgiveness therapy. You know what happened? They also became non-depressed. Wow. And it's actually the strongest published data still. And this was yep. published in 1996 on healing through the grave injustice of incest. Wow. It's, I, I actually, I think I, that was early in one of your books. And I remember reading that. I thought incest survivors, like it, I'm not sure how right. I can, you know, not think this is going to help me uh, with, you know, with these other issues with my mom. So it, it really, and I think that there was a study with men also whose partners had gotten abortions. Is that? That's, that's correct. Okay. Yes. And they, they did not want the partner to have an abortion. And yeah. so they came uh, to the, this particular research also clinically depressed. Wow. And they too were able to go to non-depressed status. And so uh, Catherine Coyle, C-O-Y-L-E, was the one who did that particular study. Yeah. And so both of those are going into very serious hurt with very good results. It, I, it's amazing. And that's, it, again, it's why somehow, and you always talk about this paradox and it's true, somehow this really works in a way other things don't. And what I find is that people are coming to me mostly with this, not just, you know, anger. I always tell people anger is healthy, you know, but this rage and I call rage anger plus hopelessness, right? When you put those two together, you're enraged. Yeah. And the, and we, we focus on the anger instead of focus on this helpless feeling. And that's why a lot of anger therapy doesn't work, you know, and here, you know, you talk a lot about resentment, which uh, I'm in recovery. Uh, and we talk about resentment a lot in the 12 steps, because it is one of our sort of main things to, to work through. And I think a lot of people don't realize what. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. what it looks like that you need to forgive. In other words, they don't think, oh, you know, yeah, I'm resentful of my husband because he's he cheated on me or something happened. They don't, and 
they don't really think of it, or maybe it's not cheating, maybe it's something lighter, like, uh, oh, they, he's always late. He's always late. And if he loved me, he wouldn't be late so much. And these little dents, you know, I call them dents that happen over a time in a marriage, start to build these resentments. And so, and I guess my, my first question in here, in all that I'm saying is, would you say that if you have a resentment, it, you need to do forgiveness work? Is that blanket statement work <laughs> or no? <laughs> Well, let's again take a look at what we mean by resentment. You're right, Abby. Anger is good. Because anger says, I am a person of worth as everybody else is. The one who hurt me doesn't have a right to do that. And my anger is showing that I have a right to be respected in this world. Yeah. And so anger in the short run is good because it shows you know the moral code you know what is fair, and you ought to be treated fairly as you treat others in a fair way. Resentment is what I call anger on steroids, where now you get this and it stays within you and it kind of balloons up to be far more than it ought to be, so that not only are we angry at the one who hurt us to begin with, we're now angry with the world. And we're angry with so many other people that it's getting in our way. Resentment can complicate the effects of the injustice to such a degree that we're miserable all the time. And we come up with even a philosophy of life that I would call pessimism. Nobody can be trusted, for example. That's classic. Yep. Okay. So when we have resentment in that way, I would say, that forgiveness itself would be good for anybody on the planet who has anger on steroids. Yep. But not everybody would want to forgive because I remember the title of my book that you already mentioned, Forgiveness is a what? Choice. It is, a choice. <laughs> it is not a demand. It is not a you're a bad person if you don't. Yeah. I didn't title it that way. Forgiveness. Yeah. That's what I like about forgiveness. It's up to you to freely take or to reject. Yep. And so I, if, I, if I were asked, do you think it's good for everybody? I would say yes, if they choose it. And then when they do choose it, I think it can set them free, quite frankly, in surprising ways. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. And I, I talk a lot about how um, everything that you learn in relationships is a skill. You know, communication is a skill. Effective listening is a skill. Self-confidence is a skill. You know, you're not born with these things. We, we learn them and we practice them. And, and I don't know if you've ever used those exact words, but forgiveness is in that realm of it's a process. It's a skill that you could practice maybe on some smaller things first that feel a little more attainable. What do you think of that? I think it's extremely wise that you say that. I mean, let's think about it again if we use an analogy. If we're asking a child to learn the game of soccer, what they call football in Europe, <laughs> you don't start right away with all the hard moves that are impossible. You start with the smaller ones, with what we call the fundamentals, and you work up. It's the exact same thing with forgiveness. And I do recommend when people have huge issues with very important people in their lives, that they do some practice forgiveness with someone who annoys them. It might be someone at work who's just a little insensitive. Start there. Then you, through practice, you really do build this up as a skill. And we've known this for thousands of years because Plato and Aristotle in ancient Greece told us that. They said you gain perfection in any of the moral virtues by three things. Practice, practice, practice. <laughs> yep. And so it's the same thing with regard to forgiveness. Start with smaller issues with people who annoy you, not large issues where people enrage you. Then you build up to that. And now you can really hit the soccer game with greater skill. You can hit the forgiveness game with greater skill and maybe now accomplish something with those who've really done a number on you. Mm, I love that. It's interesting because as you're talking, I'm realizing that 
Um, I forgive very easily now. I I yeah. have, uh, you know, I've been practicing that. I never thought of it this way, but I, w- I was uh, being interviewed actually on a podcast recently. Um, and they they were talking about relationships and they said, oh, we always ask, you know, what really bugs you about your partner? You know, what drives you crazy? And I sat for a minute and I said, nothing. And they were like, oh, come on. And I, I said, no, I don't like, and it's true. If you had asked me that 20 years ago, I would have given you a list, but it's very interesting. I, things come up and it's like, oh, you know, and I'm able to really allow things like to feel it, you know, I'm like, oh, that's annoying. Oh, what's that about? And I have this compassion that happens very quickly now. Um, oh, he's probably had a hard day. You know, he doesn't usually snap at me. I, you know, I don't need to hold it. I don't need to hold the things. And I didn't realize until this moment, but I'm thinking that, you know, I've developed this skill that I've been using in all these sort of bigger ways, but without even realizing, I think I've been using it a lot in smaller ways. Exactly. Well, see, again, that's the wisdom coming out of ancient Greece again. With the idea of practice, the great Aristotle, and I actually based all of my work on Aristotle's philosophy, he says we eventually develop, get this, a love of the virtue. See, at first, people might say, forgiveness, ooh, that's just so creepy to me to think about being good to those who aren't good to me. You practice it over and over again in small and in large ways. And forgiveness then literally becomes a part of who you are. It actually gets inside you psychologically so that it becomes part of your identity. And I do have one of my self-help books, other than Forgiveness is a Choice, also with the American Psychological Association called The Forgiving Life. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it actually is more philosophically deep yep. than Forgiveness is a Choice because we talk about working on forgiveness so it becomes a part of your life. It becomes where you develop a love of this virtue, where you now want to forgive when you've been hurt deeply, where at first people say, oh, no, how dare you even suggest it to me? Now people say, it's not just part of my life, but it's part of my thriving. And why? Because forgiveness works. And the more we allow it to work, the more it literally becomes a part of who we are. Yep. I love that. I and I think it really intertwines and tell me if you agree with um you know when 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 we're caught up in this resentment and the blame and the victim you know feeling victimized uh over and over there there become and then we act in ways that we don't like you know I was acting in ways towards my mother I didn't I didn't like it didn't line up with who I thought I was and taking to me as i was learning to forgive and i still work on this but i take more responsibility for my own behavior like i then am in the driver's seat of my behavior and taking responsibility for it i can't i'm not blaming this other person anymore i am i'm still again like you're saying i don't say oh that was great so glad that happened i'm not doing that but I'm not blaming them for now who I am as an adult, you know, or later in my life. Um, if I'm having trouble in a relationship, that's on me. <laughs> you know, if I'm, if I'm, you know, getting caught up in something that's on me and, you know, continuing to blame my parents uh, was not getting me very far. Yeah, what's happening there, if you think about it, is you're no longer letting the effects of the injustice which we bring with us throughout our life, you're no longer letting those effects control you. Mm. You are now in control of those effects because you are saying, I am not going to keep giving into this. I am going to have a new way and not take the bait of Mm. being bitter with everybody because I had a difficulty in my childhood and adolescence. And so it really is a beautiful thing when we realize, hey, I do not have to let the effects of what happened to me years ago control my life anymore. I remember I talked with one person after I gave a talk, and she said to me, my anger used to control me. Now, I still can get angry. It's not that it expunges completely, 
but I now am in control of that anger and how I express yep. it. Oh, that's great. Yes, I I would agree. I would still get angry at my mom. You know, I would still things would still, yeah, of course, because we're human. Um, right. But yes, I didn't feel like a red wave came over me anymore. And I felt like I could choose how I was responding and mm -hmm. deal with it from a different perspective. And even you know, there were times when I ended up apologizing to her because of how I was acting you know, but before I would be like, well, she's acting that way. And, you know, like somehow I'm allowed to act this way because she's doing that, that, that all sort of went away. Again, I'm just realizing this now that, <laughs> but we're having a therapy session for Abby today, everybody. Uh, but, um, but I, I'm sort of realizing how that shift, you know, there was a lot of shifts there. I didn't realize fully were happening. Yes. And did you also realize that it humbled you? where you practice the moral virtue of humility, because what were you now doing? Apologizing to your mother when you know you were giving an eye for an eye, you yep. see, rather yep. than embracing person to person, yep. you were giving the eye for an eye. Now you're meeting her person to person. And you say, sometimes yep. I mess up. I'm sorry, mom. <laughs> That's humility. Yep. I have found that humility <laughs> and forgiveness do they actually do develop together. That's great. You know, and I, and I wanted to, I'm, I'm, this is so hard. I'm remembering something and you'll, you'll, I think jump in, but that's really important because I want to shift this slightly. There was a way that you spoke about that. I, I had never thought of it this way, but you were talking about like, let's say a, uh, for parents out there, let's say your teenager, I have a few of those breaks curfew. And they come home and you were saying like that there's a way that you could, you forgive them, right? You, you still love them, but you have a boundary. You go, okay, you're punished, you're grounded, right? But that's it. And then they have their, that's the boundary. There you go. And I still love you. I don't take it as a personal affront that you did this or whatever. I forgive that you did this. You're a teen. I get it. I see your humanity. As opposed to a parent who might, not punish the teen, but then be resentful about it. Oh yeah. And bring it up all the time. Right. Like, oh yeah, you kept, you know, well, you just come in whenever you want, I guess, you know, and, and sort of digging at them. Then the teen, of course, the teenager's going to get pissed and be resentful, sulky, you know, recalcitrant, all the things teens like to do anyway. And then we're, and then probably even do the bad behavior again, because they're like, F you. So is, is, is that the kind of, I think it was that example that you gave. It just was a different way to look at forgiveness that I hadn't thought of. Yes. Well, basically to summarize that, when you're forgiving for the adolescent for breaking curfew, you can still have the sanctions, but here's the big deal about the forgiving. You are doing it while you are seeing a person in front of you, not just some um, teenager who is just breaking all the rules and is sassy. No, you're seeing a human being who is trying to grow, who is falling down, but does need the guidance. And when you talk about your second example of just permissive parenting, letting the adolescent off the hook and then carrying the resentment, you're not necessarily seeing a, a person there who has inherent worth, built-in worth. But forgiveness operates fundamentally from that premise first. That person, even though I'm annoyed and they need correction, is a person of inherent worth. And now ask something of the person, of your own child. And it's going to come out very differently. And I think it's going to come out better. Mm -hmm. it, well, it does. I'll tell you. So my everybody, my McCartney, my 15-year-old, uh, snuck out of the house the other, literally this past week. And, you know, I caught it uh, and she, you know, she snuck out in the middle of the night. I was terrified, whatever. And so she got grounded, of course, and had a lot of, a uh, lot of sanctions, <laughs> but I am very, you know, I'm a loving Jewish mommy, you know? And so within that, like she was grounded at home. So we, I had, I had her do some chores, extra things at home too. And, but there was, I, you know, she wasn't, I didn't think of it again till now, but she wasn't 
like a sulky teenager about it. She got that she should get something. She was apologizing. And I really, it's true. I was kind of forgiving her for this thing that terrified me and upset me. And we had a lovely weekend together, actually, because she was grounded. So I had a captive audience of my teenage daughter, which I was sort of joking with her. I hope you break more rules so I can just have you here, not out with your friends. Um, But it's true. There is an energy about it that where I just don't, you know, get caught up in like this idea that she did it to me and you're openly disrespecting me and how dare you do these things. And I just didn't go there, but she had very major (laughs) um, sanctions. She actually had a whole sleepover party plan that I was like, nope, that's gone. You know, all this stuff was gone. It really, it hurt, you know, her little life for a few days um, or a week. But now that we're talking, I realized we were getting along and it didn't damage our relationship at all. And you know why, in some ways, even though she misbehaved and really terrified you because of going out, you know, and being vulnerable, you were showing her respect in the context of those sanctions. In fact, you were showing her love in the context of the sanctions. Loving your daughter doesn't mean simply letting her off the hook in terms of what is just and reasonable and safe for her. So the respect and love come into the equation when the adolescent is messing up and the adolescent sees that. The adolescent sees the respect and love, but that might make them a little more cooperative even because what you're saying is you are more than running out of the house, but I don't want you running out of the house because you're a person of great worth and I don't want anything to happen to you. I think your daughter saw that. That's I I hope so. But it's, it's a it's an interesting thing because we <laughs> we're sort of known among her friends of my, both my kids as like the strict parents. Like we're like she had some major <laughs> stuff go on for that. And we always fall through on the punishment, you know, we don't like you don't get off for good behavior like this is what it is. Um, but I do maintain a really close loving relationship with my kids, even though I think they see us as sort of tough, you know, tougher than other parents. Um, and it's an interesting line because I, I think what happens often, I've talked about this before, is that people change their boundary depending on how the other person's acting. And I always say your boundary should be intact no matter what the other person is doing. If they're really nice, it doesn't mean you get nicer and collapse your boundary. If they're really being not nice, it doesn't mean that you suddenly, you know, cut them off and never speak to them again. You know, you don't, you, you keep your boundary where it is. They'll act however they act and, and right. And you stay intact. And what happens is I'm not acting crazy all the time because I'm keeping my boundary. So I don't get resentful that someone trampled it because no one's trampling it. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping them up. It's an interesting thing. And well, it's also exercising another moral virtue, the moral virtue of justice. It's either right or wrong. And it does, that, that scale of where it's right or where it's wrong isn't going to change just because your daughter is nice to you or not nice to you. You're saying this is what's fair and we're going to hold to it. So you're exercising the moral virtue of justice and the moral virtue of forgiveness together. That shows classically what I was talking about when you asked me to define what forgiveness is not. And I said, forgiveness is not, I said, use the expression throwing justice under the bus. So you are actually balancing rather than thinking either it's either forgiveness or justice. No, it's forgiveness ah. and justice. Ah. And so you are exercising both moral virtues at the same time. Congratulations. Oh, look, everybody, I'm morally virtuous. I don't think anyone, uh, <laughs> last week's podcast was like on porn. So I, I don't think anyone is uh, thinking I'm morally virtuous, but hey, we're going to go with it right now. Um, <laughs> I It's very interesting to have all these ahas, I just want to say. Um, so, and I, I want to make sure I'm, uh, uh, I could talk to you all day, but I want to be very uh, respectful of your time. So. So what would you say are the real reasons people want to forgive? If you had a 
you know, bring that, why forgive? Like why choose this path? What, what, okay. what are you going to get? <laughs> okay. There's a difference between what a person wants out of forgiveness and what you actually can deeply get out of forgiveness. When you ask people at first, they will say, I want emotional healing. And that's completely honorable. If you're in a raging sea and you're drowning, you want the life preserver. Forgiveness is a life preserver. Mm -hmm. And that's yep. fine. Most people come to forgiveness therapy because they want emotional healing. But yep. once they begin to emotionally heal, they realize that, you know, what I also think is reasonable about forgiveness is relational healing. It offers the possibility anyway, if the other is willing to take my hand when they're, I'm saying, please come and climb up out of that pit, you very well might get reconciliation. And so they say, hey, that's valuable. Another thing you get, I find when I talk to people who go through forgiveness therapy is growth as a person. Yep. We talked about standing in the pain, giving compassion when the world is telling you not to be compassionate. You say, you know, I am more than the pain that happened to me. I am someone who can be a conduit of good for other people. Here's another reason people forgive once they again develop out of that drowning in the sea and they're now on dry land and they practice, practice, practice. They realize that they can be an aid to the one who hurt me. I can actually help that person to grow as a person. So I'm not the only one growing as a person. I can help that person grow in their humanity when I say, look what you're doing to me. Let's stop that so you can go to higher moral ground. Mm. Forgiveness then also can be widened beyond just the person-to-person -person benefits to the whole family, where we're not, no longer bringing our wounds from our family of origin into our current family so that we can now leave our wounds from childhood at the door so we're not wounding our own children. So you can promote more peaceful families, more peaceful workplaces. Right? more peaceful worship communities, for example, mm. then you can widen that. And you had said it at the beginning of this podcast, Abby, if in fact, we each can practice forgiveness as a life's calling, where we can have a love of this virtue, we will have a more peaceful world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I work in Belfast, Northern Ireland. They've had the troubles. <laughs> Israel-Palestine, look, they just had an 11-day war, and it wasn't pretty. It was hard, hard, hard. And Taiwan, where there's Taiwan-China issues. Liberia, I work in. Wow. Okay? They had a civil war with four different groups. 250,000 people died. Some of the people they're calling for nurturing forgiveness toward the others. More peaceful world. Literally a more peaceful world. Also. When we forgive, this one's important, but comes, this is an advanced reason. And people get this only later in their forgiveness journey. They say, you know, to forgive is to help me live out more consistently my philosophy of life or my faith. Because many, many faiths say we need to find more peaceful paths. Mm -hmm. We need to find a way out of war and a, a way out of hurting one another. So my practicing forgiveness is making me more consistent with what I believe to be true in the world. Mm. So it, it dovetails with one's philosophy or faith. And then people also say, I don't care what others think of me. I don't even care what the consequences, whether when I forgive, because forgiveness is good in and of itself. And it's worth exercising no matter what the consequences. Mm. See, now that one, think about that one relative to the first one. I need healing. I'm doing it for myself. And that is not dishonorable. It's actually adaptive because mm. I need healing. 
Yep. But now this eighth one, I just went through eight of these. The eighth one basically is saying, I am going to exercise forgiveness because it's good in and of itself, regardless of whether people think I'm crazy or not, regardless of whether the other with whom I'm in conflict thinks I'm crazy or not. I'm doing it because it's good in and of itself. No compromise. Oh, oh I love that. I, I know somewhere you said uh, it's true too. Forgiveness is a risk. You know, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. You, you, you can't say. Uh, absolutely. But there's this right. paradox that when, you know, we reach out to help this other person, we heal. And it's so true. It's bizarre to me. I've lived it and it's still bizarre. <laughs> so it's sort of magic to me, but it's true. Yeah. Well, it, it flies in the face of the current norms of, the 21st century, where if you've been hurt, the uh, let the other have it. Well, that only goes so far. Uh, Gandhi said, if we keep taking an eye for an eye, the whole world will be blind. So what forgiveness is, is actually setting the stage for justice seeking, where we quiet our heart, heal our heart, and then see what we can do in this imperfect world and as best we can to heal rifts between and among individuals and families and groups. Mm. So it's, it's, it's the open door to the justice. But you know what the world has done? Forgotten about forgiveness yep. as a first step. And that is not the way it ought to be. Yep. Oh, I'm, I am not going to say another word after that because that is a fabulous way to end. It's so true. Oh my gosh, that's great. So, the, I mean, if you don't want to forgive by now, I don't know what to do. I, this is the thing. This is, you know, folks ask me all the time why I always seem so happy. And it's, uh, there's a contentness and a peace that's really baller. <laughs> it's really amazing. Uh, and so, where can where would you like people to find you and and i'll link to your book on my on the so everybody the abbymedcalf.com forward slash podcast i'll have a link to uh, there are a couple i have i have i have like the teacher version i've got them all but um we'll link to the two books you want to read uh and no i don't get any money or anything else this is just just for you you link in uh to get his books they're wonderful because you can actually then work through the process yourself, really read the book, read all the research, see what you want to do. But where, where, what would you like them to do next? To, or what are you working on? Or what do you want to say? Well, if they, anyone wants to explore more in depth, we have a nonprofit organization called the International Forgiveness Institute. And the address is internationalforgiveness.com. I'll link to that. blogger. Yeah, I'm also a, a blogger for Psychology Today, the national magazine. Mm -hmm. Yep. And the my, the name of my blog is The Forgiving Life, which is one of my books. And I just published an essay today uh, with the question. Uh, it was something like, "Does your brain make you forgive?" Ooh. In other words, yeah, there's some neuroscience out there that says your brain structure is what predisposes you to forgive, as opposed to your will, your perseverance, your strength. And so I muse about that, because I think that kind of thinking that forgiveness is just a part of your gray matter, how much gray matter you have in certain areas of the brain, is almost a passive view of the moral virtues, especially the heroic moral virtue of forgiveness. But I have 87 essays there in the forgiving life of psychology today. So I'd say those would be probably Great. the two big ones right there. Okay. So I will link to those on the show notes page. So abbymetgap.com forward slash podcast. It's going to say forgiveness. Uh, and I will link to all the goodies and all the ways to get the books and follow and go to the, and go to the blog. All of the things will be there uh, at the ready. So thank you so much for being here today. I learned I, learned, I felt like I had a therapy session, everybody. I'm not sure if you guys did. Um, I had many ahas, which was wonderful. 
And thank you for being so generous with your time uh, and being here. It's been my honor to be with you, Abby, and I wish you and all your listeners the best. Aw, thank you. All right, everybody. We are uh, coming back next week, and I'm going to be talking about anger and resentment as a great follow-up to this so you can really, you know, get deep on the forgiveness for two weeks in a row. I love you so much. I'm so glad you were here, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Relationships Made Easy podcast with wonderful me, Dr. Abby Metcalf. And I've got two quick things to say. Just give me one more minute. First, I love spending this time with you and I work hard to make sure every single episode is going to help you move from any feelings of frustration or resentment or anxiety to that connected, hopeful, confident. That's always my goal. So if you have any ideas for a future episode or just want to say hi, let me know what the podcast is doing for you. Anything. You can email me at abby at abbymedcalf.com. How simple is that? And the second thing I want to say is if you like the podcast, you're going to go crazy, crazy for my book. My book is really good. I'm really proud of it. You can find it on Amazon or on my website under the shop section on my website at abbymedcalf.com. It's called Be Happily Married, Even If Your Partner Won't Do a Thing. And even if your partner will do a thing, the book will still really help you. So that's it. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.